Thank you, Miss Stacy and Dad and Roger Dale. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Colossians chapter 4, verse number 2. We're now firmly in the last chapter of Colossians, if you can believe that. And there will only be two more sermons to finish out this book, including today's. And I want you to to think back to where we started in chapters 1 and 2. And Paul gave us a defense of the sufficiency of Christ. Remember that false teachers had come to Colossae. And they were trying in every way to deny that Christ alone was sufficient for salvation. They were teaching things that we went over like you need Christ plus a certain philosophy. Or you need Christ plus the Mosaic law. You need Christ plus a certain mystical relationship with angels, among other things. And all of that just amounted to one thing, faith plus some kind of works, religion. And in all of those examples was a complete denial of the sufficiency of Christ alone for salvation, sola Christus. And the Apostle Paul, he goes hard in those first two chapters to to rebut and attack all of those ideas. Remember, he's saying things like, Jesus is the image of the invisible God and by him all things were made and he has all power and so on. And we went through all of those verses And then he makes that tremendous statement in Colossians chapter 2. In Colossians 2.10, he says, And in him you have been made, what? Complete. And then having established so clearly that, that Christ is sufficient, Paul starts to teach us, Okay, Christian, If you now have this salvation in Christ that is sufficient, then you have a new life. And you have a new lifestyle. And so then he turns the page, as you remember, in chapters 3 and 4, to discuss this new lifestyle of the new man, as we said, in Christ. What he gives us in chapters 3 and 4 is this picture, the these descriptions of what the new creature in Christ Jesus is supposed to look like. And we don't have time to go back through all of that, but I want to just get right back to the part where we were last time. If you remember, was the whole idea of the lifestyle of the Christian as related to how a Christian speaks with his mouth, with her mouth. As we saw saw before, the, the gold 
standard to, to strive for is that our speech should conform to the reality of our position as a new creature in Christ Jesus. That's the gold standard in general. Not in perfection. Let's keep that in mind. In general, our speech, our conversation should absolutely, necessarily undergo a change after coming to Christ on his terms of repentance and faith. And remember, I told you there are four things that Paul deals with in regards to our speech here in verses 2 to 6 of chapter 4. And the first one we looked at last time, I want you to remember it. It was found in verse 2 there. And we just looked at this verse alone last time, verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. So the first characteristic of the speech of the new man is prayer. You remember that word, devote? Remember what a strong word that is. That has to do with a a strong, persevering, committed, continual, daily communicating with God in prayer. That's the full strength of that word, devote, there in verse 2. And, and remember also the idea is, is striving in your life to keep a God consciousness and an, and an eternal perspective in your mind. And, 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 and remember the example I gave you. Whenever something goes down in life, something hard, if you're keeping a God consciousness and an eternal perspective, when something goes down, the first thing you think about, I need to pray about that. I need to pray about that. In the same way, something good happens in your life. The first thing that should enter your mind, if you're keeping a God consciousness and eternal perspective, the first thing that should enter your mind, I need to thank God for that right now. I need to stop and thank God for that because he's responsible for it ultimately. Whatever it is, keeping alert. Remember, being diligent about the things that we do need to pray for with an attitude of thanksgiving, as it says here in verse 2. Now, for the details of all that, you can go back and on our Facebook page, you can listen to the Providence Pulpit podcast or you can watch the video on our church page. But let's keep moving forward in the flow of verse 2. And one of the things I want you to remember is that the Apostle Paul was a prisoner in Rome while he was writing this book of Colossians. And so when he says here in verse 2, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it, with an attitude of thanksgiving. Let me tell you, that has some guts to it. That, That has some weightiness to it. Because he's a prisoner when he's writing that. Think of it. Paul is in prison. And he has an attitude of thanksgiving. So the mouth of the new man 
has the speech of prayer with a constant attitude of thanksgiving, no matter what your outward circumstances happen to be on any given day in your life. That's what we learn from this. And then next in verses three to four, we see the the speech of proclamation. Let's look at verses three to four. He goes on. Praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned so that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Now notice you see the word speak twice in those two verses. He's praying in verse three that God would open a door to speak what? The word. That God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ. Paul is praying to be able to open his mouth and proclaim God's gospel. And notice next what he says in verse three at the end. For which I have also been in prison. My kind of man. Bold. Fearless. Relentless. No matter the circumstances. To preach. To proclaim. To advance the kingdom of God in this world with the opportunities that he's given. And you can go read the amazing story of everything that led up to the point of Paul being put into prison in Rome, starting in Acts 22. And if you start, I'm sorry, Acts 21. If you start in Acts 21 and you read all the way to the end of the book of Acts, what a saga it is with the apostle Paul. What a great biography it is. For Paul, no matter what was going down, it didn't matter what was happening. The way he looked at it was an opportunity to preach Christ. John MacArthur says the only time his voice was silent was when the axe cut his head off. Now, I found out this interesting tidbit from the ministry of John MacArthur that I didn't know last week. He once got a letter from Charles Tex Watson while Charles Tex Watson was in prison. Now, if any of you don't know who that man is, he was one of the leaders of the Manson family, of Charles Manson fame. And they went and uh, committed heinous murders, cutting the baby out of the womb of Sharon Tate, an actress at the time. Horrible, horrible crimes. And in his letter to MacArthur from prison, Charles Tex Watson wrote the following. I want you to know that I've gotten some of your tapes and I'm growing in the Lord and received Jesus Christ as my savior. And I've got a Bible study going into prison. Now, oftentimes, you know, sometimes, eh, but Charles wasn't getting out. Okay. Then they wrote back and forth a few times to one another. And in one of the letters, this is what Charles Tex Watson 
who committed some of the most famous, heinous murders in American history, wrote to MacArthur. What's kind of exciting is that this is a great place to minister. If the Lord wants me out, that's his business. If he wants me here, that's his business too. I'm happy wherever as long as I'm able to preach for him. Now, let me tell you, that's what happens when a person, no matter how notorious, is genuinely transformed through the power of God in regeneration and the granting of the gifts of repentance and faith. There's nobody that God can't change. There's not a person on this earth that God can't change through the power of regeneration and the granting of the gifts of repentance and faith. And that was the attitude of Paul that Tex Watson had there in his prison. Anywhere was a pulpit for Paul. Even when he was chained to a Roman soldier. Even when he was stirring up whole towns and getting into serious trouble and getting beaten. And he got stoned so bad one time they thought he was dead. Beaten with rods and whipped. And there was never a negative opportunity as far as he was concerned. Paul would get beat, he'd go right back into town. Start up again. And if somebody says, well... Yeah, man, we're we're in 2024. I'd like to proclaim the gospel, but the circumstances I'm in, they just really don't permit it. Just think about Paul at that moment when you think that dumb thought. At the end of his life, the golden era of Rome had passed. The dictators, the emperors by then had usurped all the power of the people and the Republic of Rome was dead, was, which is where we're heading in this Republic unless something changes drastically. And when Paul arrived in Rome, the absolute worst of emperors was in power, the Emperor Nero. And when Paul got there, He was only at about 25 years old, which means, let's say he was full of vim and vigor. I'll use those words. He was responsible for the murder of his own mother, Agrippina. He was also responsible for the murder of his own wife, Octavia. This man was heinous in ways I can't repeat in polite company. You do your own study of the emperors of Rome. You'll be shocked. In the middle of all this stood the temple of Jupiter there in Rome and all the false worship that took place there. And on the Palatine, there were three great palaces of the previous emperors, Augustus, Tiberius, and Caligula, who was a true psychopath in his own right. Go read about Caligula. But for Nero, all three of the palaces had been lumped together to make one big, huge, giant home for Nero. And Rome had become the international center for absolute decadence and debauchery and 
paganism, bread and circuses and gladiators and murder and all the rest. There are approximately 2 million people living in the city of Rome at this time and more than half of them, 1 million or better, were slaves. Historians tell us 700 were senators, but by this time they had a senate, but it had no power. The emperor had all the power. 10,000 were knights, 15,000 were soldiers, and the majority of the rest of the people in Rome were poor. Thousands slept on the streets because they were homeless, just like we see growing in our nation today. And though our culture is the worst it's ever been in our over 200-year history, let me tell you something. We ain't got nothing on where Rome was during this period of time. We're heading there at light speed, but we ain't got nothing on where they were at this time. And right in the middle of all this decadence drops this little stick of dynamite, Jewish dynamite, the Apostle Paul. And as I said, even though he was a prisoner, and if you remember back, we talked about this. What he, he was like in a lockdown in a little small apartment with the Roman soldier in there. People could come and go in there. He was still locked down. He's still in prison. It never for one minute hindered his proclamation. And during this time period, he wrote Colossians. He wrote Ephesians. He wrote Philippians. He wrote Philemon. So it was a very productive time for Paul. And I want you to look. That gives you an idea of where we are here as he writes this. And we look back at three and four. Look at verses three and four. Do you see anywhere in those verses where Paul is praying, God, please get me out of this? No. His prayer was, God, please let my mouth have an effect while I'm in here. Open up a door for the word to be proclaimed. And notice verse 3, how he uses the plural pronoun, us. Well, that's because he had some buds with him. When we get to the end of this chapter, we're going to encounter some of their names. And at one time or another, these were some co-workers with Paul. So he's praying for us and opening a door for us to speak the mystery of Christ. And he, he prays a similar prayer. Remember, I've talked about all through this study of uh, Colossians, how there's so many parallels between Colossians and Ephesians. Well, he's writing them at the same time period while he's in this prison. But look at Ephesians 6.19. Similar prayer. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. Paul understood, just like we need to understand, that we are on a battlefield here in this world. We are in the trenches in this world. We're like infantrymen, soldiers. Notice Paul, he's not praying for his personal needs. He didn't say, oh, pray for me that I'll be under, able to hold up under the stress of being in prison. I mean, he didn't even pray to get released from the prison. He just said, pray for me that I'll be able to open up my mouth and find a 
a door for the word. That's boldness, folks. In Acts chapter 4, verse 29, the New Testament church is first starting. The first prayer that's recorded in Scripture that the New Testament church prayed when they got together. And now, Lord, take note of their threats. Lord, the whole town is after us right now. And grant that your bond servants may speak your word with all confidence. That's what they prayed when they first got together. Notice they weren't out asking, please get us out of this alive. They're after us. No. Grant us the confidence to speak your word. That's the prayer we need to have in our day here today. In any situation, give us the confidence. Give us boldness to speak your word. And notice again back in verse 3, that's the emphasis. Open up to us a door for the word. That's the key. That's what we're focused on here at Providence Baptist Church. It's all about preaching and teaching the word here. So I tell you all the time, don't come here to hear from me. You come here to hear God using me to preach the word. The subject matter of every sermon is always going to be the text of the scripture. And in particular here in verse Three, what does he zero in on? We'll look next so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ. That's all the gospel. Now, when I say I am full gospel, that means something different than what a lot of people in the profession (laughs) church thinks that it means. We are a full gospel church in the sense of all that the biblical gospel embodies, not the foolishness that's out there in professing full gospel churches that don't even preach the gospel. Specifically, that phrase, the mystery of Christ. We look at that. It's referring to all those sacred realities that are partially veiled in the Old Testament and fully revealed in the New Testament. Let me give you just a couple, like the fact that Christ is God incarnate. Amen. Uh, the, the mystery of the indwelling Christ and the indwelling Holy Spirit. The mystery of now one church, Jew and Gentile, together all one in Him. That's the kind of things that he's talking about here. In other words, Paul is praying... Pray that I might have an open door for the word to speak the full truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ because Paul said, woe unto me if I preach not the gospel. Because Romans 1.16 says the gospel is what? The power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek, the Gentiles, to everybody. The big issue in every time period, and especially in ours, is yes, God wants us to proclaim Christ. But listen to me. He wants us to proclaim Christ right. 
the way it ought to be done. And that is exactly why he says next. Look at verse four. It's exactly why he says next that I may make it clear in the way that I ought to speak. Don't proclaim Christ the way Kenneth Copeland thinks he proclaims Christ. Because he doesn't. Ever. We are to be very concerned about getting the proclamation of the gospel right with all of its parts and all of its components. If you leave the issue of sin out of the gospel, then you really haven't proclaimed it at all. Just that one issue. And there are so many so-called preachers in our land who do just that on a regular basis and they don't even deserve to carry the title of preacher, in my opinion. They may have a lot of people. They may have a lot of money. But they have dishonored their king. And they have made merchandise of his name. And woe unto them if they don't repent and get to preaching the gospel right. Look, and I'll do this at these drug meetings if they come to fruition in the providence of God. Telling the story of my life and and conversion is a great thing for people to hear. It's very beneficial for people to hear the change that was made about in my life. But if I don't attach the gospel and all of it and all its components to that testimony, all that I have done is wasted my time and wasted their time. That's all I've accomplished. If you leave the hard parts of the gospel out of the message, the bad news, the realities of sin and hell and judgment and the desperate need for repentance, then whatever the people are responding to will absolutely never save their soul if you leave the the hard parts out. If all you've got is a message about achieving a happy, fulfilled, successful life in Jesus' name, if you just come to Jesus, then you might as well send them to the Oprah. Because she's most likely better at giving that message than you are. And think of it. Paul. The apostle Paul is praying in verse 4, that I may make the gospel clear in the way I ought to speak. So if Paul needed to pray for that, how much more do we need to pray for that? Hmm? All right, let's move to verse 5. And Paul is still dealing with this area of speech. Look at verse 5. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of your opportunity. Other versions end with redeeming the time. Now, I love that phrase a lot more. Redeeming the time. Along with what we say, it's very important, as I said before, to be in line with who we are as ambassadors for the king because who and what we are 
is that which gives credibility to what we say. Doesn't that make sense? You ever heard the line, your life speaks so loudly, I can't hear what you're saying? Huh? Verse 5 starts out with the word conduct. Other translations say walk. Remember, walk always comes before talk. You don't have your walk right, keep your mouth shut. He says, conduct yourselves with wisdom. Now, a whole lot can be said about the word wisdom. Okay? But how about let's do this? Condensed definition within this context. Listen to this. See what you think about it. Properly evaluating circumstances and making godly decisions. Wisdom. Let me say that again. Properly evaluating circumstances and making godly decisions. Conduct yourself with a carefully planned, consistent Christian lifestyle. And if you have any questions about what that looks like, just read uh, Ephesians chapter four, five, and six, and you'll be on your way. Okay. We don't have time to do that right now, but remember Colossians one, nine and 10 for this reason. Also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and ask, look at this, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that what? So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Now, you need to understand that when you were saved, you were given wisdom, which you grow in as the days march on, and you need to be filled with that wisdom so that you can walk in it. That's why years ago... I learned in practice, this is the way I pray. I don't pray for wisdom. God's already granted wisdom to me through the gift of salvation. I pray, God, grant to me ever-increasing measures of wisdom. Does that make sense to you? And I don't don't just limit it with wisdom. God, give me ever-increasing measures of grace. I need today as much grace as you can possibly give me, right? Ever-increasing measures of grace and wisdom and strength and courage and perseverance and endurance. I need ever-increasing measures of those things. But make no mistake, a Christian can walk through this life like a fool. A Christian can conduct themselves like a fool. And when they try to talk, Don't nobody want to hear what they want to say because of how they act. One of the benefits of being a Christian is that we have been given wisdom, but sometimes we turn our back on it. One way to conduct yourself like a fool is found in 1 Timothy 6, 9. Look what it says. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. One way to play the fool is to live your life for money. Now listen to me carefully. I'm not against making money and making a whole lot of it. I'm not against 
having a successful business. I hope you do. It's great to make a great salary and make a lot of money. There's no, there's no virtue in poverty for poverty's sake. But what I am saying is then that's when you live for. When money and things is the be all, end all of everything you do say and think as a professing Christian, let me tell you something. That's going to confuse your testimony to the point, well, nobody's ever going to hear what you have to say about spiritual things. That's just a greedy, money hungry person right there who proclaims to be a Christian. Another way to play the fool is to live the Christian life legalistically. Galatians 3.3. 3. Love this verse, Paul tells the Galatians. Well, first he asked the question. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? It's like you're trying to live out your Christian life in your own power and in your own strength and in the flesh legalistically. Are you that foolish? To legalistically or live for money, those are just two ways that a Christian can walk like a fool. There's more, but I think you get the idea here. So let's move on and let's talk about ways that we can cultivate wisdom. Well, first, there's worship. Proverbs 9, verse 10, you know it well. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. When you worship God the right way, with, with reverence and a right sense of reverential awe. Not none of that foolishness that we see in the evangelical church today. People jumping around and all that stuff. But when you do it the right way, with reverence, with awe of who he is, let me tell you, that's wise. Secondly, prayer, James 1, 5. But if any of you lacks what? Wisdom. Let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach and it will be given to him. Thirdly, you will gain God's wisdom when you study God's truth. Remember back in Colossians 2, 2 to 3, that their hearts may be encouraged having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding resulting in true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's in Christ that all wisdom exists. And where do you learn Christ? Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone. And then remember, remember Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all what? Wisdom. Okay? So we grow in wisdom through, through worship, through prayer, through study. And there's also another way. Instruction from godly teachers. Remember Colossians 1.28? Look at that. We proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. So wisdom is also gained in receiving instruction from godly teachers. And as I tell you all the time, 
not only here at the local church level where we provide for you as a means of grace in the church, the preaching and teaching of the word of God every single Sunday morning and every Wednesday night with prayer. But in this day and age, you have immediate access at your fingertips for free on the internet, the absolute best Bible teachers in the world at your fingertips. No other generation of world history, of church history, has had this kind of access. That's why we use uh, Steve Lawson in our Sunday school. Why would we not use one of the finest Bible expositors in the world to teach our Sunday school class? Why would we not take advantage of that? So God uses the means of worship and prayer and study and instruction of godly teachers to impart to us and to grow us. In wisdom. And listen, when you walk in wisdom toward them on the outside, then and only then is what you say going to mean something to have a real effect on the people that you're talking to. Just think about the Colossians for just a minute. How did they advertise their faith? They were a very tiny minority in a very large city. They didn't even have a church building. They didn't have a big old cross sticking up in the air. They didn't have no signs, no tracks, no books, no podcasts, no social media, no billboards, no radio, no musical production. Heck, they didn't even have a New Testament. You understand? How did they make it? How did they grow? As a church, they got the message through wisdom and then they lived it and they proclaimed it in their community. That's how a church grows, biblically. They walk the walk and then they talk the talk. No different today. Let me tell you something. If you're not the genuine article, people can tell. And the ones who fall for all the religious charlatans that are out there, they're usually looking for the wrong things to begin with, you know, looking for the breakthrough or whatever. So he says in verse five, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, that's unbelievers. And next he says, making the most of your opportunity. I love Psalm 90, verse 12. I often quote it at funerals. So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of what? Wisdom. Opportunity. Let me tell you, Christian, it's here now. It's here today. And soon for every single person in this room, it's going to be gone. Life is short. People are dying. We are dying. A little bit more every day, and Jesus is coming. Opportunity is now. I'm 55 years old. <laughs> Mom doesn't like that. That's okay. That's all right. It's true, though. 
And I don't know about you. But I'm so thankful that God plucked me as a brand from the fire. And he, and, he, and he just saved me from living life my own way, which was speeding toward prison or death. Yeah. That is the thankfulness that I have for salvation of Christ is what drives me to do all that I can with the time that I have left to do all that I am capable of with my breath to advance the kingdom of Christ and bring glory to my maker till that last breath that I have on my deathbed or in a car accident or whatever's happening. That's what drives me. That's what should drive you because the time is short. Let me tell you, I don't even need to hear well done. Just let me in. Okay? I'm good. Romans 13, 11 to 12. Do this knowing the time. That it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believe. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. You should be putting on your armor every day. We're in a battle. This nation is under judgment and we are the only light that there is. When will you live the way God wants you to live? How much time are you going to waste? How much opportunity are you going to squander every day? When are you going to share the gospel with that friend? With that coworker? With that neighbor? When are you going to tell them about Jesus? I'm preaching to myself here just as much as I'm preaching to you. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of your opportunity. Do not waste the gift of sovereign grace that God has granted to you. So I ask you, what will you do for your king? Look at what he's done for you. Last area of our speech that Paul is going to teach us about today. Get ready for this one. The consistency of our speech. Look at verse 6. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Now that was Jesus. His speech was always with grace. I mean, even when he was getting on somebody. I mean, because think of it. Every single minute of every single day when he was here, it was God talking with frail creatures of dust who had no clue that they're standing there talking to the creator of the universe. So every breath and syllable, jot and tittle, was grace as he was speaking to them, right? And here he's not so much talking about the preaching of the gospel as, as he is just general conversation, which can, of course, include gospel conversation. But 
It speaks that's the opposite of that list we looked at a few weeks back, cursing, deceit, lying, perversity, vanity, false teaching, hatred, swearing, boasting, all that list that we looked at before. Let your speech always be with grace. And we need to work on that, don't we? Hmm? Because other folks don't always talk too nice to us, do they? Hmm? Or about us. Huh? We have to work at making gracious speech a habit. Whether you're being persecuted, whether you're in a stressful situation, whether you're being wronged by somebody, whether it's your wife or your husband or your kid or your neighbor or whether you're teaching a Bible study. When he says, let your speech always be with grace, he's not talking about grace from the doctrinal standpoint, the doctrine of grace. He means in general conversation. Speak what is fitting when you talk. What is spiritual? What is wholesome? What is kind? What is purposeful? What is complimenting of another person? What is truthful? What is thoughtful? What is loving? And always think before you speak. Hmm? You don't always have to say everything that can be said in a conversation. You don't always have to say every single thing that comes into your mind at the moment that it comes into your mind, even when you're right in all of those things. You don't have to do that. It oftentimes depends on the circumstances. In many situations, be slow to speak. Christy can tell you that my motto for many years has always been, especially in family situations, it's best to say what? Less. It's best to say less. But when you do speak, let it be gracious, not bitter, not abrasive, not vindictive, not sarcastic, not shady or angry or boastful. I mean, we just keep going with that list, right? Let it be gracious, but it's not always only Ned Flanders. Now, you have to have watched The Simpsons to know who Ned Flanders is. Ned Flanders was this kind of caricature of an effeminate, cheesy Christian man. You know. It's with grace. Look next in verse 6. But as though seasoned with salt. Okay, now... We're talking about that conversation having some kind of effect. So let's talk about that phrase, seasoned with salt. Salt does a lot of things. It stings if you put it in a wound. But if you put it in a wound, after the stinging is over, what does it do? It heals. 
Salt also prevents corruption, right? Salt also flavors. We love salt down here in South Louisiana, right? So think of it this way. Our speech seasoned with salt, it not only flavors, it's not only a blessing, but it should also act as a purifying influence within this decaying society that we live in. So it stings. It heals. It flavors with blessing. It prevents corruption as a purifying influence in our society. For example, do you know that you can change the conversation in your workplace like that as a Christian? And it might run everybody off. But sometimes people stay. And they want to hear what you have to say as a Christian. So we are to let our, spe- our speech be gracious and thoughtful and gentle, but, but also it needs to sting just a little bit when it needs to. The Greeks had another idea, a thought here. They said the, the idea of salt was the idea of wit. Wit, among other things, is the ability to say just the right thing at just the right time. And that's really what Paul is saying next. Look at verse 6. So that you will know how you should respond to each person. So, for example, the flow of gospel conversation is different depending on who it is you're talking to, right? I mean, the gospel message never changes. I mean, we never alter the gospel message, not one little bit. But for example, the flow of our conversation will be different depending on if whether or not we're talking to an atheist or we're talking to a Buddhist. You're going to talk to them in conversation differently, but still the same gospel message. And you could come up with a hundred examples in your mind of that. Saying the right thing at the right time depending on the circumstances in the right way. That's what he's getting at. Now, you just went through all that. I want you to put all that together in your head. And let's read verse 6 again with all that. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Now does it make a little bit more sense. So in closing, if you're a new creature in Christ, you should have new speech. Not perfect speech, but new speech. And that new speech is something that we have to work at and that we have to cultivate every single day. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today, we thank you for this instruction from the Apostle Paul, who's incredibly in prison as he's writing this with an attitude of thanksgiving. Lord, I pray you take these things we've learned today and bind them to both our minds and our hearts that we might make application of them in our lives to enable us to better and more richly and more deeply bring, live lives that bring you maximum glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.